Unlock exclusive content and access to our podcast while supporting our show. How is that possible? Become a Narratives of Purpose patron at patreon.com forward slash NOP podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Narratives of Purpose, or should I say a new episode of Creativity Found. That's right, we are doing something special throughout this month, namely episode swaps. You won't be listening to me and my guests, but to fellow podcasters who are creating amazing content I absolutely want you to listen to. Today you will hear from Claire Waite-Brown. Yes, I met another podcaster named Claire just like me. What are the odds, right? And we now get to exchange episodes on our respective shows. So Claire hosts the award-winning podcast Creativity Found, where she chats with people who have found or refound their creativity as adults. She also builds a community with the Creativity Found Collective for people to promote their creative activity business and connect with others who can help them thrive and grow. If that is something that speaks to you, you might want to check her website at creativityfound.co.uk. As always, you'll find the link in the show notes. In the episode I am sharing with you today, Claire speaks with Ella and Harriet, two prison officers turned playwrights who talk about their experience navigating the UK criminal justice system and healing through creativity. They also discuss providing a safe space for those in similar situations now through their outreach programs. I hope you enjoy this conversation. kind of went along with it bright-eyed and blinking going okay sure we can be prison officers potentially not thinking about the realities of the job that's the language is violence from prison staff from people incarcerated that's kind of how things run smoothly weirdly and it's how you kind of keep control and keep people safe which feels so counterintuitive so I think that was a really key part of recovering me was was actually getting back to our creative practice properly you know so going back and writing a play about our trauma and seeing how much it helped on par with therapy on par with medication on par with you know regular exercise like it genuinely was a huge part of our healing and our trauma recovery hi i'm claire founder of Creativity Found, a community for creative learners and educators, connecting adults who want to find a creative outlet with the artists and crafters who can help them do so with workshops, courses, online events and kits. For this podcast, I chat with people who have found or re-found their creativity as adults. We'll explore their childhood experiences of the arts, discuss how they came to the artistic practices they now love, and consider the barriers they may have experienced between the two. We'll also explore what it is that people value and gain from their newfound artistic pursuits and how their creative lives enrich their practical, necessary, everyday lives. For this episode, I'm speaking with Ella and Harriet, the writers and performers of the play Sellouts, spelt C-E-L-L which gives a very big clue as to the roles they both worked in before taking this brilliant show on tour. Please note that this episode features clips of my guests' work colleagues speaking about aspects of their jobs that you might not want younger listeners to hear. Hi, Ella and Harriet. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We're very excited. Oh, so am I. So you are theatre makers whose work on stage and as workshop facilitators is inspired and informed by your frontline experiences of the UK Criminal Justice Service. What I would like to know first is why and how you became prison officers. 
Well, we met at university, Ella and I, and I was studying English and Elle studied English and theatre. So not necessarily the most conventional route into the prison service, possibly not what people would expect from an officer. But we were both really interested in like using theatre and, and arts for social reform and bringing it to people who maybe feel marginalised or don't normally have access. So we heard about a scheme where graduates have been encouraged to kind of join the prison service and I actually guilty I was the one who emailed Ella the link saying we should do this so it's all on me um I'll put my hands up to it. <laughs> um, and yeah that was that was why we, we kind of wanted to get involved it was sort of pitched as being like a chance to see prisons frontline work with those people who are incarcerated and have a real focus on like rehabilitation and positive impact in that system which you know for better or worse that was the intentions we went in with a healthy dose of uh, white savior complex and a kind of social justice warrior energy I think was pretty key and when you got there what did the training actually involve I mean we were woefully underprepared the training was six weeks long and it had a big focus on the sort of practicalities of the job. And considering that as a prison officer, you pretty much have to be a mental health expert because you're dealing with some of the most complex individuals in our society. And there was very little training around that. And there was very little training around how you also keep yourself safe from vicarious trauma, from corruption, from assault, all of those things. It was a lot of buzzwordy. It was very buzzwordy training. And we kind of went along with it, bright-eyed and blinking, going, okay, sure, we can be prison officers. Potentially not thinking about the realities of the job. So yeah, six weeks, which flew by, and then we were on our landings. And the moment we got onto our landings, it was very much, forget what you were told in training, you learn on the job. And it's very difficult because I'm not sure if any kind of training, unless it's the sort of like two year Nordic model where you get a degree at the end, could prepare you for that job um, because it's unlike any other job that you'll ever come across in society. And it seems to me that you may have been missold. Correct me if I'm wrong, but during the training, did you ever kind of get to think that this perhaps isn't isn't going to be what I think it's going to be that maybe I won't be able to do my good arty stuff there and at any point in the training did you think perhaps I'll just leave this perhaps I won't do this at all we definitely should have thought those things I think maybe we were at an age and a point where we weren't being overly critical thinking kind of critically and really analyzing the reality of what we were doing I think in part the energy around slightly naive systemic saving was being preached to us as well I think the training attitude was that that was all going to be feasible and possible um, even whilst we were in that six weeks it was kind of like we were going to be the people who could change these individuals lives and that was the kind of rhetoric around it and I think we very much bought into that which you know for better or worse possibly should have had our eyes slightly more open. I think when Ella and I also have a tendency to once we've decided to do something it doesn't tend to get put down very easily <laughs> So I think there was a kind of gung-ho, let's go for this. Like so many people telling us this was so unexpected from somebody from our kind of, I don't know, profile and background and people assuming that the officers wouldn't, for example, have degrees. I think that's a preconception and a judgment a lot of people have around prison staff is that they're an uneducated workforce, which putting in inverted commas there, Um we were kind of wanted to subvert that as well and prove to people that like we could be working in those kind of extreme environments, which comes from a place of ego. So I think big dose of naivety kept us there. A lot of ego, a lot of proving ourselves, um, a lot of our own mental health stuff going on as well, like and our experiences and traumas in the past. So I think possibly with slightly more coherent guidance and clarity over that role and the reality of it, maybe we would have 
seen it for the for kind of what it was going to become but at the time we were blinded by that I think yeah I can understand the um perseverance (laughs) from you so where were you both placed how did you fit in then as the young enthusiastic newbies among experienced officers and actually in the workplace yeah so we were placed in not the same prison, much to our dismay. I was placed in a women's jail and Harriet was placed in a men's jail and they were just opposite each other. And I remember when I got told that I was going to go to a women's prison, I I fought against it. I was like, no, this is not what I had in mind. What I had in mind was being able to tell men and to sort of yeah get to their education and I felt a lot more comfortable telling men off and asserting authority over men which is maybe subversive to what people might think but I was a lot more scared going into a women's prison not because of the like levels of violence I mean I didn't even think about the self-harm and suicide but it was more the I think the closeness and the intimacy that I knew would come with working in a women's prison and yeah, dealing with my own trauma whilst in that. I mean, I, I should have listened to myself. I, I remember calling up the scheme and saying, I, I don't want to do this. And then, of course, got persuaded into it with facts and figures and you can change this and you can change that. And then Harriet got placed opposite me in, in a big, big, scary men's jail. Um, and <laughs> we could drive in together and, and sort of wish each other luck and then see you in 12 hours with a whole load of more trauma, which we'll then sort of laugh about in the car because that's our only way to deal with. Um, And it was very interesting, the difference in both the jobs, working as a prison officer in a women's prison and working as a prison officer in a men's prison because they are incredibly different. And I think what happened to me and Harriet and our own journeys and our own mental health issues that happened as a result of that, I think is very revealing. Yeah, very, very interesting and kind of why we then went on to write a play about it. Because how do you function within these like hyper gendered, hyper violent, just hyper everything environments? And yeah, I would say that I probably took on too much of the, yeah, I took on a lot of vicarious trauma from the women, which is almost impossible to not do because you are being a, yeah, you're being a, effectively like a social worker and a healthcare worker and a mental health worker and literally a firefighter and a nurse and also like a parent and then you're being asked to discipline these women and strip search them I mean how you deal with that I don't know and then yeah and then we had Harriet and opposite me in in the men's prison A prison officer is a police officer, firefighter, nurse, psychologist, bin man, Tesco's, social worker. You are everything to these people. It is very, very hard. It is demoralising because you just you just feel like you kind of you're just fighting a losing battle sometimes. She's delivered a baby before. This is how this is how the, the job is so crazy. What was the difference then, do you think, Harriet, between your experience and Ella's? Um, I think when Els and I talk about this now, we we kind of have to bed into the very gendered world of those two environments. And, and I don't agree with them at all. But the lines of kind of male and female are so heightened in prison settings. And so the expectations of behaviour, I think, is similar. I think with women societally we feel a lot more comfortable saying that a lot of the women in prison are survivors a lot of them are victims of crimes themselves they're very vulnerable we don't have that same narrative with male prisoners although it is a truth that most of those men for them to have fallen into a life of the kind of crime they're involved in have been abused by the system they have faced severe systemic injustice it's not a comparison point but they're incredibly vulnerable as well but we don't treat them like that. And it's a very male, in inverted commas, approach to mental health. It's don't talk about it. It's so much repression. 
there's no space for vulnerability. There's no space for kind of talking about how you feel, even on a very basic level, expressing that, articulating it. There's just none of that approach to it. And that bleeds into staff, I think. So in male prisons, regardless of the gender of officers, I think the approach is a lot more crack on, tends to be more disciplinarian. There's not space for people to be talking about their traumas, often also because of the volatility of the environment, like violence is used as the kind of key currency and means of communication. That's the language is violence from prison staff, from people incarcerated. It's that's kind of how things run smoothly weirdly and it's how you kind of keep control and keep people safe which feels so counterintuitive it's very knotty to kind of unpick but I work specifically with people with addiction issues and substance misuse so the people I was working with had another additional level of complexity that for me to keep them safe and consistently ensure they were medicated I shut off pretty much all of my kind of humanity I'd love to sit here and talk to you about what the root of your addiction is but if I do that I'm not going to medicate this person they're probably going to overdose and they'll go into cardiac arrest so to keep people safe I can't see you as human and that and that's kind of the headspace that I moved into I think maybe Elle's moved into like seeing people in prison as the only humans and dehumanizing herself and I dehumanized the people there so It was definitely a big contrast. And I think, yeah, the kind of ramifications on the self are similar. I think we both erased all of our own needs (laughs) and ourselves as people um, in order to wear that uniform. But you handle people in quite different ways. It was very like respect driven. It was very kind of etiquette based in the men's prison. It was a lot around, yeah, hierarchies, structures, how you engage with those men yeah it was really different and I'm I'm almost now glad that we can look at those two angles and compare and contrast them was it worth it for the trauma probably not but um I am glad that we have those different perspectives I think it's really important because there's not a single experience that people have within the prison system um so it's important that we get both sides I'm going to be very flippant here. But yes, it was rather good that you both went through your very different experiences and therefore you were able to give a much better show at the end of it. <laughs> Literally. Proper for your art, guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to a whole new level. <laughs> anyway, sorry, all laughing aside. Um, it sounds like obviously more than a nine-to-five job in so much as it, it's your whole being. You you take on a role, you take on a character when you are in the prison. Did that infiltrate into life outside of the prison walls? For me, it, it definitely did. The extreme trauma which you witness and the extreme violence and self-harm and mental health crisis and the stories you hear of course it's going to permeate your mind and your identity and what you become and and I definitely noticed it blurring into like my personal life and into my subconscious and into my dreams I'd have nightmares I'd have yeah waking up thinking I was in the prison and stories I'd heard and it very much gets in your mind and the thing the stories that I heard and the things that I witnessed genuinely still haunt me today Like there is, I don't think you can quite understand unless you've been in that environment, just quite how extreme it is. And so it still, it still bleeds into my personal life, you know, two years later or however long. But at the time I didn't realise that blurring, which was where it kind of gets scary. And, And there's very much this, right, once you hang your keys up, you leave, you leave work in, in the prison walls. And I I would say that in theory, going, yeah, okay, cool. We shut the gate and we go home. But that's not how the mind works and it's not how the body works. Like your body holds all of that adrenaline, all of that trauma, all of that tension. You're in fight and flight 24-7 in the environment. So it's not like you can then just shut a gate and go, cool, yeah, forget about all those people that I've just had to lock up. It's not how it works. And as a result, I think, yeah, I think I became well, very anxious, but also angry, resenting of a world that seemed very like 
flippant when I returned to it and no one was, yeah, everyone was talking about like, oh, what they're doing at the weekends and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just like couldn't engage in those conversations sometimes and other issues like paled into comparison when that's not how life should be. It's not always trauma top trumps and, and it's not com- comparative, but it became that. I was like, how can people be complaining about this when I've literally just seen like someone try and take their own life 20 minutes ago at work? or someone set themselves alight in their cells and had to deal with that. Like, how how can you then just go back to being like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do at the weekend? And who's dating who? Because nothing seems, nothing seems real. And I think that's, that's when it became scary because you're, you can't then come back down to, in inverted commas, normal life which is like a base level of non-adrenaline that that didn't work so I think me and Harriet yeah we definitely became hardened hardened versions of ourselves well we thought we became hardened but in reality inside we were much more weepy and insecure and who knows what I just remember seeing this guy and it's just brutal like absolutely just completely slash himself to absolute bit if you went to a shop yeah and you didn't have any money and you said, can I have a packet of cigarettes? And they say, no, you haven't got any money. You wouldn't start slashing your wrists up, would you? You wouldn't start saying, oh, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me some fags. But in prison, that's so normal that you wouldn't even blink. I think the walls around it do more than just keep the prisoners in. I think it just kind of, it keeps a lot... I, I think it makes people feel that they're protected from the norms of society and and so they feel like they can say what they want to say and they can do what they want to do and they feel like they're untouchable. And yeah, I became became angry, I became a lot more like volatile in my personal relationships and weirdly a lot less empathetic to probably the people in my personal life because I didn't have anything left to give to myself or to others because I'd given everything to that job. So therefore, when you sacrifice your identity and your integrity for something, when you then try and form healthy relationships in friendships with loved ones, with families, it's not going to work because you're not looking after yourself and you're literally showing yourself no love. And so, of course, you're not going to form sort of healthy, a healthy identity outside of those walls. And I really respect people who can do that who can do that job and still maintain a sense of identity and a sense of joy and love and in, in their personal lives, because I think it takes the most incredible boundaries, which I did not have because I did not have an understanding of my own mental health. Um, but yeah, I think it definitely bled. I don't know about you, Harriet, but I think for both of us, it did. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely did. A big reason why so many officers are so insular in their communities, like officers, best mates are officers their partners are officers it's a very kind of close-knit bond and that like camaraderie people talk about isn't in the kind of like oh we're all on the same team energy it's nobody else understands this I think friendships that you have with fellow colleagues you don't ask for anything from each other because it's the only other person who understands that we're all completely empty. (laughs) Like our cup is empty. And I think those friendships are the ones that are based on an understanding that you, you can't give really that much to anyone outside of those prison walls. Like there's, there's just nothing left. And I think that must be really difficult for the people that were in our lives at that time. I can't believe they're still around, (laughs) Um, but it must've been really difficult for the people who were you know, with us and around us and in our kind of families and friendship circles because, yeah, it was it was a big erasure of, of ourselves and our identity. And I think as people who normally would have identified ourselves as caregivers, loved kind of being there for our friends, very open, that's what drew us to that role. To then lose all of that when you're outside of those walls is is really difficult. And I think it took a long time for Ella and I to process and kind of forgive ourselves for that time and that person we had to become because you hold a lot of shame around that and the idea that you could have kind of been that person and how did how did I manage that transformation? I didn't realise humans were so malleable. <laughs> yeah, it's taken a long time to sort of heal from that shift in ourselves. 
let's come to that then. Let's start to come to the the healing and, and the coming out of it, because that's very, very emotional what you've been talking about. And I'm a bit jittery just listening to it, let alone actually experiencing it for myself. Um, I want to know then how you did decide to leave was it a slow burn? Were you seeing things in each other? Because you, you've spoken about other people not understanding. And obviously, you did you did have each other. I don't know how much of it you saw in each other. How did you then come to both of you decide to leave? And also, how did you physically leave? And how did you emotionally and psychologically leave as well? I think it was very, very interesting to reflect back on how those interpersonal relationships between me and Harriet and me and loved ones affected my decision. And I had people from six months in going, this is destroying you, please, like I'm begging you to leave. And Harriet would never have told me to leave because she knew that that's an impossible ask because her asking me to leave is asking me to like leave behind those women who I've, try desperately to care for and to leave behind a whole workforce that I'm now trauma bonded to and so we never directly told each other to leave but I think there was a time where Harriet went oh I might I might stay on for a bit and I remember the world fell out from under my feet because I went well if she stays like I've I'm staying and I don't think people understand that until they've been like trauma bonded in in that kind of environment with somebody else. And and because we lived together, it was kind of this thing of, yeah, I I have to stay and I have to stay for those women. And leaving is selfish. That's what it felt like. It felt like leaving is incredibly shameful and selfish. And I failed. I failed this women, these women, I failed this system. And do you know what? If Harriet's going to continue... I have to continue. And I think I remember us having the conversation being like, Harriet being like, oh, I might stay. And me being like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll stay. And I think her then being like, Christ, you can't stay. Right, we better both go. Because I was in such severe mental health crisis, which I couldn't see. But I think it was weird. It was like, (laughs) Harriet was like, right, okay, well, I better leave then because Ella definitely needs to leave as well. Um, And ultimately, Harriet was also in absolute crisis. We were just dealing with it in different ways. Um, And it got to the point where I wasn't really sleeping very much. I wasn't taking care of myself at all and was having quite extreme anxiety. Not when I was at work. When I was at work, I was still functioning, which is the sort of like scary part of it. But when I'd leave that environment... I was beginning to not be able to like function as a human. And that was where it kind of like it all crumbled. And a few very traumatic things happened in a sequence of events leading up to me then leaving, which basically meant I couldn't continue. I became completely disillusioned with the job. I'll argue by the end of it, I wasn't... (laughs) I cared about the women, but I didn't care about the job. I didn't care about reforming the prison system. I just literally cared about, like, on a base level, keeping people safe, making sure everybody's got toilet roll and getting people fed, and that was it. And I became very, like, sort of angry and and disillusioned and burnt out, I suppose, severe burnout. Yeah, so then I started doing a little countdown in my calendar of being like, right, what day can I leave? And I remember it started at, like, 100 days, and every day I'd tick it off and... And I could have left at any point, but it was this weird, this weird doomsday date I'd set. And I was like, if I make it till then, I will have survived. I will have done something, you know, I will have achieved something, even though ultimately I I wasn't, I wasn't achieving anything. I was just doing more damage to myself and probably ultimately those who I was caring for, because I wasn't equipped. I wasn't equipped to be dealing with the situations I was dealing with, especially in the burnout condition it was probably ultimately quite dangerous because I didn't have the capacity to yeah take those on. And then when we left it, I remember my last coming up to my last day and it was, it was sad. I was so sad. And the women bundled me on my last day. Literally. I was like, right, look up ladies for the last time. And then they all came and gave me a massive hug. And then there, a lot of them were, yeah, very sad because also I was sad because they've, 
everyone in their lives ever has left. And there I was leaving. And and I explained to them, it was very nice to be able to be honest with them. I, I went, I'm done. I've given everything I can give. And they were like, get out. Miss Church, leave. Don't be here anymore. Go enjoy your life. And for them to be saying that <laughs> speaks volumes. Because they were like, yeah, get out. Go do something. Go be a teacher. That's what they'd always say, <laughs> which is really lovely. And then, yeah, it was very emotional for me that last day. And I still miss them. Still miss the women. Still miss the staff. Yeah, it was a very weird day, wasn't it, Has? Mm, definitely. It was very weird. I had a very different last day because in the men's prison... They're so insane about security and corruption that you're not allowed to tell them if you're leaving. <laughs> so I just had a last day where I just left kind of without being able to say any kind of goodbye, like zero closure. I think maybe some of them had picked up on it. I'm sure I let slip to a few. <laughs> but, but in general, it was a very like... The idea that you'd form any kind of relationship with those men was so so forbidden especially as a kind of female presenting member of staff if I had a laugh and a joke with a prisoner there was a strong chance someone would put in a corruption report so the idea that we kind of had any way of saying goodbye was was that and that I found that really heartbreaking because yeah you care so much about those men and it really matters that you formed relationships, especially in that environment, the kind of miracle of having achieved doing that when everything is set up to not allow it. And like Ella said, I thought about staying on because I think I really did feel at some stage that there was this idea that you needed to work your way up in the system and get higher up and that was where you could make change. And it was like this idea of change being dangled as a carrot. So you can make change if you're an officer. Okay, you've been an officer for two years. We didn't really mean it. Now what we mean is you can make change if you're an SO. You get to SO, well, you've got to be a governor, so just keep going. And it's it's not real. <laughs> now, I think I sort of firmly believe that when you're within that system, the system is so against you and against the individual and rigid and built on ancient, racist homophobic sexist all of the kind of foundations of that system are so rotten that you're just putting a band-aid over a bullet wound but I was really really close to applying for governor would have been a disaster <laughs> so thank goodness I managed to pretend to myself that it was for Ella that I wasn't doing it <laughs> both needed permission what you can hear there is both of us needed permission Ella needed the permission of me and I needed the permission of her to, to not be there and I think that's really key. And I do wonder about how many staff are in that system that feel trapped and don't feel that they have that permission. And I feel very privileged that we could leave. And I think a lot of colleagues that I knew didn't feel like that was even an option for them. And it's hard to imagine, but I totally understand how that can feel like it's not an option. I remember it not feeling like an option for us. So yeah, it was leaving was a really, I think probably one of the hardest things we'll ever do weirdly harder than a lot of the stuff I did in there I was just going to add yeah that I think because ultimately the men and the women they can't leave so who am I to be able to then just walk away and desert them and you know you could argue oh yeah but they've done something wrong so that's the reason they can't leave but it's like the trauma that they have witnessed in their lives is so extreme and so you begin being like, oh, well, the trauma I've seen isn't half as bad. So surely, like, I should be able to stay. It seems pathetic because at the end of the day, I go home to a lovely warm bed and they have to stay within this prison. How can you leave that without shame? So a huge amount of shame leaving. Yeah. I lasted 12 months before I hated my job. I hated it. I hated getting up in the morning and for some reason I stuck at it for another five years after that. Absolutely love them, like family, like as cringy as it sounds, like they'll, they'll, they feel like part of my family, like. I still had this like really weird, empty feeling like I miss it. It's almost like leaving an abusive relationship, like, you hated it and you hated the toxicity of being there, 
but you still love them. But you still love them. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the weirdest feeling. Okay, then. Yeah, I completely understand all of that. But tell me, tell me about you and your experiences of the time after you left, when you did give yourself permission to leave. And of course, after that, everything was wonderful. Everything was happy and lovely again. <laughs> Presumably that's not the case. Kind of what was your recovery process? It was long. <laughs> it was long. I think it's ongoing. So Ella and I left literally just before COVID. So we came out into a world that was altogether different. And I think maybe because the world was undergoing such a unprecedented, the catchphrase, <laughs> uh, moment, it almost gave us, again, that permission to kind of treat ourselves differently. And I, Initially, I, I ran straight out. And now I can look back and say with confidence, with quite a huge adrenaline addiction, having spent two and a bit years in full fight or flight every day, my body needed was was seeking that adrenaline. So I joined a kind of really lovely, fantastic theatre company and was regularly seeking out kind of the most stressful options. I think I was looking to create that that similar sense of adrenaline and stress. And that process of like unpicking that and stopping the repression that had become completely normal and commonplace, um, I think it did take a full stop, you know, on work, like having to move back in with my parents, having to spend essentially a year at home. Ella and I weren't together, which I think undid a lot of the kind of trauma bomb stuff that had really set in. And we were kind of focused purely on that recovery. So it was a lot of therapy. It was taking it really slowly, which felt totally counterintuitive and very alien um, and very unfamiliar. And I think I think probably the biggest part of my recovery was writing the show. So the play that we wrote about that two and a bit years about living together, about our experiences in the prison, that was a huge recovery process. It took us, I would say, about a year, a year and a bit to write. Um, so we did it really slowly. We were long distance throughout and we kept it as a really safe kind of trauma-informed space our director was Ella's sister who's a fantastic director in her own right but also an incredibly safe pair of hands in that sense because she's family so yeah we were very conscious throughout the process of making sellouts that it was a form of therapy for us and if it never went anywhere that was fine it was serving its purpose simply by giving us a chance to process and explain and articulate our experiences so I think that was a really key part of recovering for me, was was actually getting back to our creative practice properly, you know. How about you, Ella? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think the initial stages of leaving, for me, was just learning <laughs> how to live again and, and um, sleep and eat and exercise and work some kind of job and just be a little regular human again. Um, and that took a lot of slowness and, and therapy and and healing and to not feel shame about that and then falling back in love with the arts and creativity because we'd, we'd become disillusioned with them when we were in the prison I think because we'd seen that they don't even have sufficient meals or health care or safety we were like why do they need theatre why did we ever think they needed theatre why did we ever think they needed arts like they should be using all the funding that they're doing on that and be able to get proper detox and proper therapy all of that and we became incredibly um yeah disillusioned with it so going back and writing a play about our trauma and seeing how much it helped on par with therapy on par with medication on par with you know regular exercise like it genuinely was a huge part of our healing and our trauma recovery for me, it was like living proof of the power of what creativity can do. And I think that's why we set the company back up. Not back up. It was never existed in the first place. We just set it up um, uh, to then be able to share some of that with the people who we had come into contact with. 
because it was so joyous and it, rem- it reminded us how to like laugh and love and connect with humans and and feel joy which we hadn't in a long time and which the prison environment is well set up in a way that it tries to remove every element of joy and every element of humanity and ultimately creativity in the arts bring that back and and yeah allow space to do that which is very rare in those environments so that's that's why we then set the company up and you get to enjoy performing the show you also run workshops about your experiences and you take that to schools and to prisons but when you revisit those times in those environments how do you not go back into a bad place you know how how do you protect yourself when you're helping others understand the experiences I mean, I think a large part of it now, comparing ourselves to back when we first joined, is I think we have an understanding of what trauma does in a body and how it works and operates. And so much of our practice now is about managing that and really understanding our own triggers. Like there are things that don't make it into the show. There are things that we have always held back in the process and said, you know, such an important part of autobiographical work I think is knowing your kind of safe box that is never going to make it into your work and like being really bounded about that and I think we both have kind of that sort of material that we know doesn't need to leak into that practice and I also think now we both understand our own mental health so much better we have therapy still that's an ongoing MOT health check that is necessary as an organization we make sure we have like clinical supervisions you know we're working to make our practice kind of practice what we preach in the like understanding of burnout we don't put pressure on if performances don't feel right and we've got it wrong in the past we've made mistakes we've definitely done performances that haven't been as safe and held and I think we've learned a lot from them but knowing that that now I think we are kind of equipped to maybe hold that space for people but we're not coming in and saying tell us all your trauma you know we're not therapists and we can say that from the get-go and we can say like this is as much or as little as you feel comfortable sharing and let's keep it safe and let's make sure everyone's grounded and we're kind of checking in at the beginning of every session and checking out and that's something Ella and I do in our day-to-day working practices as well it's like putting in place those mechanisms that I think or often quite theoretical, and actually applying them to like workshop spaces, performances, audiences can leave at any point during a show, that's really important to us, it has to feel safe that people can do that and understand their own triggers. You know, we have aftercare projects and places that people can turn to and resources if needed. Um, And I think there's a lot of really interesting work being done like that in the in the kind of creative scene at the moment, like Clean Break's latest show had a lot of amazing trauma-informed practices around keeping it safe. And I think so many companies should be looking at that. And I think it's something that we're really passionate about. And I think it's essential when you're working with vulnerable people. And it's something we didn't have time for in our jobs before. So, you know, now we actually have the space to let people share or to not force them to share to let people leave a room and come back when they're ready and do those grounding techniques use breath work use things that we've learned in our own recovery process and kind of share those techniques with people that's super valuable let's move on tell me about your aspirations for the future yeah, had you asked this at the beginning <laughs> of our interactions with the criminal justice system, we would have had huge, big ego-driven aspirations. And I think now, I mean, as a company, we're abolitionists. We don't believe the system should exist. We believe there are alternatives. If you want to have a longer chat with us, email us. Um, and But we we're aware of our own limits and we're aware that we are one tiny little drop in an ocean of a much wider network and a network that needs to have a lot of different voices within it. 
and we are just two of those voices and there are areas that we're not experts on and there's areas that we we do know quite a bit about and we love to start conversations we have aspirations it's funny as a company we kind of do every like six months we take it at a like slower process as opposed to this huge macro level because that can also seem like you're coming up against a huge monster and nothing will ever change whereas it's like if you can hold a workshop space for children whose dads are in prison and you allow them to bond with each other and you allow them to discuss and and open up and give them a safe space that that is our aspiration for that for that moment being able to just have these moments of humanity and joy in a space that's so devoid of them and to be able to use our experience of that environment and what it did to us which we never thought would happen and be able to communicate that to a wider audience and just shed a bit of light on what is happening within our prison systems because they are shrouded in secrecy for a reason and the government are very yeah clever in the way that it's shrouded and they don't want people to be able to see what's going on because it would never be allowed and the violations against humanity that happen every single day are so extreme that we want to now be able to provide people who have come into contact with that and with some of those injustices just a uh, just a small space a small space to be able to begin that processing and talk to people who have also had experience of that and start a conversation where it's not me and has always talk about it's very binary when people talk about prisons it's very black and white you either have to be abolitionist or you have to be for you have people have done wrong so they must be in prison and there's never this area where you can discover that like gray space in safety and be like oh no but what about this and what about this and it's incredibly complex and it's incredibly not black and white and I think that's where we want to reside we want to be able to hold space for people to have those conversations and explore and explore alternatives and not lead in this sort of like binary binary way that is not helpful for anyone's recovery within that environment so yeah I think that's our aspirations I like that you are avoiding your own overwhelm as well with regards to keeping those aspirations in small sections that are achievable and you're not then putting too much pressure on yourselves, beating yourselves up for not being able to do more, which is exactly what you've been doing all the time you were in the service. So well done for you. And it is very valuable. I know you've been talking about feeling guilt or feeling like, why should I feel like this when there are people worse off than me? But it is important for you as individuals to keep yourself healthy and you can be helping other people by doing that. So you don't need me to say you're doing the right thing, ladies, but (laughs) I'll just give that little background of good for you. Keep doing it. Do keep thinking about yourselves and you know you're not going to go back to the kind of overwhelm that you had and the adrenaline and everything you were talking about before. How can people connect with you at Glasshouse Theatre? Harriet's frozen. Is she back? Oh, you're back, Harriet. You're moving now. <laughs> Try speaking now, saying your bet, because it was, it should save it from your end anyway, so... I'm back. <laughs> Yeah, you're looking good now. Am I back? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm glad I sound like I'm back. You both look like mad robots, but that's fine. Um, so people can connect with Glasshouse. Oh, by um, emailing us. Yeah, you go. <laughs> I'm gonna keep this in, by the way, guys. <laughs> Oh, you've got to laugh, don't you? I think Harriet is um, a little bit behind us. And that's, <laughs> we're looking like robots. She's a bit fuzzy. And you're speaking over each other now, which is lovely. <laughs> Who should? 
<laughs> and now we don't know who should talk because <laughs> Harriet's in a different time zone. She's in a different time zone. Transported. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to, before you start, Elle, Harriet has written in the chat, Elle's go, I'll shut up. <laughs> So off you go, else. At least she knows when to shut up. Um, <laughs> yes, so if you do want to get into contact with us and find out more about the work we run, we have a website, glasshousetheatre.co.uk, and you can just drop us an email because we are, well, we're constantly expanding and changing and exploring what we do as a company. So um, we always want to hear new ideas and new collaborations, or if you just, yeah, or if you just want to chit-chat please do drop us an email and you can find that on our website. We have lots of projects and exciting things coming up in the community, in prisons and in the theatre industry. So, yeah, we love hearing from people. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I just wanted to say how much enjoyed seems like the wrong word, but I, I did enjoy sellouts. It was eye opening as I'm sure you would hope that it would be. And I did think it was exceedingly good because otherwise I wouldn't have asked you to come on the podcast. So I can highly recommend Sellouts. If it's traveling around near you, do please check it out. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ella and Harriet. Harriet, do feel free to say goodbye. I'm sure it will be recorded and I'll be able to pop it in. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Hopefully I'm back. Thank you so much. It was absolutely lovely. Um, even if I did disappear at one point. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of Life's Rich Tapestry. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Creativity Found. If your podcast app has the facility, please leave a rating and review to help other people find us. On Instagram and Facebook, follow at Creativity Found Podcast. And on Pinterest, look for at Creativity Found. And finally, don't forget to check out creativityfound.co.uk, the website connecting adults who want to find a creative outlet with the artists and crafters who can help them tap into their creativity.